Bible. Good morning. Uh, it's great to see you guys. Uh, my name is Seth, I'm one of the pastors here. So I just want to extend my greetings to you guys and to all of you guys joining us online as well. We're super glad that you are here. Uh, two quick things before we jump into the Gospel of Mark as we're diving back in. Um, one, uh, in Nicaragua, I'm going, want you to join me. Two, today is Super Bowl. I meant to mention this last week, but I didn't, so here you go. Um, I just want to encourage you, like today is the Super Bowl, like some of you guys don't want to, like you don't care about the game, some of you guys are going to be like so like dead focused on the game that you won't say a single word to anybody, um, and maybe that's you, or maybe you're in between, but here's my encouragement is, is just snag people afterwards and just say, hey, do you want to do something together? It's organic. Um, do, just do community together. Sometimes those times are the best times, and so just want to encourage you guys to to fuel, fuel that type of community. So we're going to be on page 22 in our companion guide. Uh, we're in uh, Mark chapter 9, verse 2. Um, while you're turning, I want to just share a story. Maybe some of you guys read this article. It came out a couple weeks ago, I think. I was on ESPN, and it's, a, it's an article about um, a women's golf team uh, in Raleigh, North Carolina. And uh, and so just kind of the way it goes down, here's what happened, is that you need four people, I, I think is what it needs, like a minimum of four people on your, on your team to be able to compete in collegiate uh, like events, like uh, tournaments. And so they were down, for whatever reason, uh, a whole bunch of golfers, they were down to two healthy uh, women's golfers. And so the coach was like, well, in order to finish the season, uh, we need some more people. And so he, in desperation, sat down, like, who, like what university can do this? I mean, I, I, I'd sign up, but he sends out an email to the entire student body, 1,400 people, uh, and, uh, and he needs two, and guess who shows up? Two. Two girls who have never played a lick of golf in their life. <laughs> they are self-proclaimed the world's worst golfers is how they, how they said it. They'd never played anything. And so the way, I wish I could read you the article because the article starts with how these two girls respond to the email and they're by the chipping green, which is apparently on campus, and other students are walking by just trying to not get doinked by a stray ball. <laughs> and so here they are with their pitching wedges and just chipping and chipping and never done anything like that. And yet, guys, they were excited to be on the team. Excited to be on the team. Can I tell you, um, 18 holes combined, there's total score was 434. <laughs> oh, man. Guys, and some of you are like, are they laughing because that's good? No, no. That's like an average of 15 shots a hole. Guys, the most, the maximum per hole is five. Okay? 15. And so you kind of get this picture of these two gals who are out just doinking <laughs> the ball, you know, like such a weird word, you know, clip, 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 you know, to the right, to the left. And you kind of get this picture even too as they're in this tournament, this first tournament, and you got these, you know, the, the, whatever deep division it is, and these girls that are swinging and hitting the fairway. And, and then you got poor Marcy or whatever her name is, and ding, 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 you know, all the way up to the end. And you kind of feel sad, but here's the deal they loved it. It wasn't pretty. <laughs> in fact, it was pretty messy, but they loved it. They were part of the team, and they were like, man, this is what we're here. We're here to do this. We want to support. We want to be on the team, and it's great. Uh, they, they toughed it out for the end of the season. Their final three uh, um, events, they combined for uh, a total score of 1,358. 
and yet they finished the season. The golf team did, you know? And you go, that wasn't pretty. There's nothing pretty about that, and yet these, these gals just love being on the team. And so here's the deal, guys. We've been in the, in the Gospel of Mark for 22 weeks now. It's crazy. We're in chapter 9. We started in September. We're still going, right? And, and, and Mark is so focused on the discipleship angle, right? Like, because he skips the birth narrative. He skips all these things. He goes right to Jesus stating, hey, this is my kingdom, This is about my kingdom, and I want you to repent and believe in the gospel. Oh, then by the way, I want you to follow me, right? And so Mark goes into all this detail, and it's challenging and hard and convicting, and I think probably exactly what we need in today's church. But you miss at times what maybe feels like the softer side. Because, and here's the reality, guys, is that those golfers, (laughs) that's the disciples in this book. Failure after failure, um, over and over and over, Jesus, as he is laying things out, he's like, hey, do you get it yet? Do you get it yet? Do you get it? Do you get it? Do you not yet understand? Do you not yet understand? And it's not that he expects or demands perfection. It's rhetorical. He's like, no, you don't get it. But here's what I know about you. You're in people in process. And so here's the thing is that this morning is that we're going to find two things. One that's kind of this big idea that's this uber challenging and conviction, convicting, and it's this, is that God doesn't want another monument. What he wants is a gospel, is gospel momentum. And you're like, oh man, that sounds good. That sounds good. But subtly, underneath, as we look at the failure of Peter, I want to bring out this idea that we are people in process. And that there's a sense in which we just mess up and fail, and we don't get it right all the time. And sometimes it takes 15 shots to get to the hole. And Jesus is like, hey, I'm glad that you're here. We're on the same team together. I don't expect perfection, but I expect that we challenge each other and grow. We are a people in process. Okay, so here we are, chapter 9, verse 2. Let's jump in. This is an after six days. We could just pause there, but I'll read it all. Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. Okay, just stop. Okay, six days. How, how does Mark typically record time in his gospel? He uses the word immediately, doesn't he? He goes from one thing to the next. He's like, immediately, immediately, immediately. Like, Mark isn't uber concerned about days and time. He's concerned about the kingdom movement as Jesus shows up. He says something, something happens, people respond, the kingdom moves on, and there's this immediacy, right? That this, this urgency, this imminent nature of the kingdom that is coming over and over and over. And yet here, he says, six days. Why in the world does he say six days. Do you remember the context? The context from chapter 8 to the end of that is as Darren looked at it and some very challenging things. He did a remarkable job of walking through some challenging things that Jesus said. And so here they are, the disciples with Jesus are on the road and they are walking north. They're walking to the town of Caesarea Philippi, right? And this is a place, a place that is this far north in the Galilee area. It's east of Tyre and Sidon, which are on the Mediterranean Sea. And so, but we are close to the area of super like pagan, like paganism. Like there's a cave of Pan right there that, that they talk about all this worship of the gods. And so Jesus in this space, he's going to a place where he knows that people are like, nah, we worship our own things. And Jesus, on the way with his disciples, says, hey, by the way, who do people say that I am? Um, Some say that you're Elijah. Some say that you're John the Baptist, back from the dead. Don't know how that works, because you guys existed together, but... Or some say that you're a prophet. 
Notice that they don't say that, that anybody, like some people are like, man, he's just nobody. Like they know that Jesus is somebody. They may not know who he is, but they know that he's somebody. They just don't know who he is. And so Jesus, hmm. Here's the million dollar question though. It's relevant for each of us. Who do you say that I am? Who is it that you say that I am? And Peter, in this moment, the one time that Peter gets it right, he gets it right some, but he's usually pulling his foot out of his mouth. And he was like, hey, you are the Christ. You're the, the, the Messiah, the anointed one. Like, you go back all the way to Genesis chapter 3. As soon as sin enters in the world designed to be selfless, we become selfish, right? And God says, I've got a plan to make this right. And it's all around this key figure, the, the Messiah, the anointed one, what one day in Greek would be known as the Christ. That's the story. That's the story of Jesus. And Peter acknowledges it. And he says, you are this person. And Jesus is like, yeah, you got it right. But here's what I'm going to tell you. And this is going to defy, this is going to radically defy all of the messianic expectations of all of the people. He says, but the son of man must first suffer, then he's going to die, and then he's going to be raised again. And you're like, what? We know that story from the back end, right? Like, like we know all the pieces, but for the disciples, like they are totally confused about this. And so Peter, in this moment, who has just confessed Jesus as the Christ, who in all reality knows a lot more about this stuff than Peter, and Peter's like, hey, Jesus, let me pull you aside. That's not how this is going to work. And he's like, whoa, hands away. Get behind me, Satan. How'd you like that for a nickname? Get behind me, Satan. Do not deter me from what I came here to do. You're not concerned about the things of this. You're concerned about, you are concerned about the things of this world. More things of that. That's a big deal. And so it's in this moment, as he looks at Peter, goes, gosh, he's like, hey, okay, it's not just you that needs to hear this. So he gathers the whole crowd, and he starts with this conditional clause. He says, if, if you... Or anybody here would want to follow me, would want to come after me, here's the three things that you need to know. You need to deny yourself, you need to pick up your cross, and you need to follow me. You see, all of a sudden, Jesus is changing the reality. When was the last time you saw the words, follow me? Chapter 2. Chapter 1 and chapter 2, he says, follow me right? He calls the first disciples, Peter, James, John, Andrew, then he calls Levi. And all of a sudden, you've got a seven chapter gap between these things where Jesus finally says, follow. So it starts with this idea of him saying, hey, follow me, and I'm going to make you fishers of men. You're like, yeah, man, that sounds great. That sounds really, it doesn't sound too hard. Like, I know how to fish. And all of a sudden, you get to chapter nine. He's like, pick up your cross. You see, he's changing the reality, not just of the Messiah. He's changing the reality of what it means to be a disciple. And this is incredibly hard as we begin to get a glimpse of this, right? This is about Jesus' kingdom, not our kingdom. It's going to take commitment in the midst of challenge. And oh, by the way, Jesus is like, what, what's the deal? If you gain the entire world, then forfeit your soul. You see, Jesus has a way of putting things that changes your perspective because you think about things all the time. And all of a sudden, when Jesus says that, you're like, yeah, you're right. You see, Jesus' kingdom, this is about his kingdom, and this is about him and his lordship. And so all of a sudden, for six days, this has been setting in this whole new reality for the disciples. Day one, day two, day three, day four, day five, day six comes, and Jesus wants to go up the mountain 
takes us back to a story in Exodus where Moses goes up on the mountain in preparation. So he's kind of mimicking some of those things. But he looks at Peter, James, and John. He's like, you three, come with me. We're going. We're going up the mountain. Here we are. We find ourselves probably at Mount Hermon. That's the, the kind of the mountain in the distance. It's the tallest mountain uh, in, in the area. It's about 10,000 feet. Caesarea Philippi is settled right in the foothills of that mountain. So it's most likely that this is the mountain that they went up. And so they stay for a moment and then six days and then Jesus decides to go, you know. And there are these moments when Jesus takes only the three. Like, why does Jesus only take the three? He's got 12 guys. It's not like it's that hard or that big of a group. Like, you could take 12 guys up the mountain. Why only three? Uh, the, those three were three of the first four that were called. That's true. And so maybe he has a special relationship with them. But there are some things that Jesus only does that he allows the three to see. When I was uh, back in youth ministry many years ago, I had this leader who had, um, she had 20 girls in her sophomore group alone. And it was by herself. And I was like, Cheryl, you are incredible. You are just a rock star at this. Keep it up. They love you. They love spending time with you. Can I, can I encourage you to pick three? And she's like, what do you mean? I said, well, you can't invest in 20. She's like, what do you mean? I was like, you can't invest in 20. She's like, what do you mean? I'm like, well, you can't invest in 20. <laughs> like, I don't know how to say it. Jesus picked three out of 12. Why? And she's like, well, I can't. Like, I'd, like, I'd love all 20 of my girls. I'm like, I don't think that Jesus didn't love the other guys any less. It's not like Jesus got to the crowd or got to the 12. He's like, guys, well, I'm going to go on a trip. Just want you to know, preface, I love all of you. You, you, you. I just love them more, Okay. We're going to go. Like, that's not the way that it is. And yet there are moments that Jesus only takes three where he allows them to see things that the others don't see so that, I think, so that they can actually be the ones to multiply and invest in the other 12 when he's gone. It's a challenging thing to think about how we invest in people. But here they go, up the crowd. Luke tells us that they went up there to pray. Mark leaves it totally open. He doesn't tell us anything. He just said they're going up the mountain. And I wonder if Mark's whole purpose in this is to leave it unspoken because then it leaves us as readers wondering what's going to happen. What was the last thing that happened when the three were chosen? They entered into a house of a man named Jairus with a sweet, beautiful young girl on the bed, but gone. And so Jesus brings in Peter, James, and John in the midst of all the criticism, the mockery, the laughing. And Jesus bends down, touches her hand, and life comes back into her. How beautiful, how incredible would that be of a moment? And so I almost wonder if Mark leaves it open so it's like we begin to picture them walking the 10,000 steps, step after step, incline after incline, water jug after water jug, over and over and over to get to the top just to go, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? Mark was the first gospel written. And so this is the first thing that people would have read about this moment. What's going to happen? We don't know Mark's perspective or Matthew's perspective or Luke's perspective yet. What's going to happen? Oh, guys, it's good. This should send chills down your body because Mark is going to give us a glimpse into Jesus in a way that hasn't yet been revealed. Look at this. They go up the mountain in 2A, and all of a sudden, 2B, it says, and he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as none on earth could bleach them. 
Let's just pause for a moment, okay? Like, let's, like, let's go back in, in the story. Go back to the beginning. In chapter 1, when Jesus, he comes down to the river with John the Baptist. And as he goes into the river, what happens? It's like this, like, like this voice comes from heaven that says, This is my son with whom I am well pleased. And you're like, whoa. I don't know about you, but he's got God's endorsement. He's got mine. You know, like you look at this, but yeah, this is the very beginning of his ministry. It's got a lot to roll out. So Jesus starts performing miracles, miracle after miracle after miracle. He feeds 20,000 people. He raises a little girl from the dead. He heals a man with leprosy. He touches people that nobody else would touch. He goes to places that nobody else would go. And yet all of a sudden we begin to see that Jesus, the people are beginning to see Jesus. And I go, I don't know. He's not a nobody. He's a somebody, but maybe he's Elijah. Maybe he's drawing the Baptist back from the dead. Maybe he's a prophet. I don't know, but he's somebody. And people are beginning to see. And then you get to that moment in the boat when the disciples are going across the other side and there's this massive storm and Jesus intersects them as they're, as they're going in that direction and Jesus like waves a hand. And sometimes I think we read this passage, we're like, hey, don't be afraid. It's me, guys. Just me, Jesus. Don't be afraid. Well, you're in the middle of a lake walking on water, so I think a lot of people would be afraid, you know? But we read this in a weird way. And what Jesus does, he actually enters in. He says, don't be afraid. Ego, amen which means I am. You're like, what is that? You go back to the cave with Moses on the mountain, Mount Sinai. You go back with Elijah, same space. Both of them got to see the face of God. And in both cases, Yahweh shows up and says, you want to know about me? That's my name, Y-H-W-H. You don't need just to call me God. My name is Yahweh, which means I will be who I will be. I will do what I will do. You see, you don't need to be afraid because I have these characteristics. I have aseity. I have infinity. I have immensity. I have immutability. I have eternity. I have omnipotence. I have sovereignty. I have omniscience. I have wisdom. I have unity. Oh, and by the way, the things that you really care about, I have holiness. I have righteousness. I have goodness. Oh, I have lots of love. And oh, and boy, do I have mercy. As you look at God's character in this moment, and he's like, you don't need to be afraid because this is who I am. In my perfection, I am constantly working all of these things. None of them is outworking another. They're always in sync. This is who I am. I can do nothing but good. You can trust me. And so Jesus in the boat, as he says, ego e me, he says, I'm attaching myself to this reality. And all of a sudden, you begin to think about that in this moment, and you begin to look at other passages of Scripture a little bit differently when we know those words. Look at John 1, 14, which says, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Guess what? We've seen His glory. Yeah, we're about to see it. He's transfigured. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Colossians 2, for in Him the whole, not the part, fullness of deity dwells bodily, but then here's the hard part. Though he was in the form of a servant, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but rather he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. You see, there is a, there is a way, and this happens, that Jesus for 30 plus years has in his humanity, but all in his divinity. We see glimpses of his divinity through the healings and the forgiveness and those moments. And as he calms the, calms the waters, as he calms the wind, you see glimpses. But all of a sudden, in this moment, we see it a little bit differently. And what was maybe once more veiled is now become revealed. 
And it's just prior to this that Peter confesses, you're the Christ. And I think maybe in this moment, Jesus is like, okay, it's time. Up the mountain we go. And they get to the top, and it says that they are transfigured. You're like, what does that mean? This is the word that we get metamorphosis from, which is a weird thing, because I don't want to look at Jesus and think that like, he wraps himself in a cocoon, and then like, butterfly wings come out. You know, like That's not what's happening. We don't exactly know. But here's the way that Matthew describes it. It says that his face became like the sun. You're like, what? I've never experienced that before. Yeah, because you weren't there. You weren't Peter, James, or John. His face became like the sun. Luke says that his appearance, the appearance of his face was altered. And then you get to Mark, and he's like, oh, he's radiant. His clothes are so white, it's like beyond anybody could bleach them. He's like, hey, remember that one time when, when Peter like, spilled fish guts on his, on his shirt? And they took him to his mother-in-law, and she's like, I got some bleach. I can take care of that. And you got them back, and they were all clean. It was like that, except kind of better. <laughs> what? Come on, Mark. That feels a little anticlimactic when Matthew describes it as his face looking like the sun. And yet, Mark's is simple and effective. It says it's exceedingly. I think it's Mark's way of saying, guys, this is beyond what we can comprehend. He's recording words from Peter who was there. He's like, well, I, don't, I don't know we can really get it. It's beyond. What we can, here's what we know. It's, it's awe-inspiring, and it's beautiful. And she's like, I don't know exactly what that means, but here's what we do know is that Jesus in some way, shape, had his divinity revealed or div- veiled in parts and is now being revealed in this moment as he stands in front of his disciples. And so as we think about this, as we come back over here, Let's just, you know, kind of just start with this, okay? So let's just say that this is the city of Caesarea Philippi, and then here's the mountain, and they're going to go up the mountain, okay? But how this, how this story starts is with Jesus, you know? Um, wow, that's a really bean-shaped head. That's not what I intended. And now he's got a shoulder, and yeah, you know what? It's just Jesus, guys. He's great. Um, you got Jesus here, but he's like in his plain clothes, and so there's a, there's a way and a shape and form here in which the disciples see Jesus in some veiled manner. Like, have they seen glimpses and these beautiful moments? Absolutely. But they still see Jesus through a lens. And so Jesus is going to take them up the mountain, Peter, James, and John, which, by the way, this happens in life. We go someplace. We don't know the outcome. We don't know what's going to happen. As the sense of being veiled until there's a moment in which God reveals something to us. And so it's in this moment that you get back to Jesus, you know, and you've got Jesus. And all of a sudden, though, he's described in, in such a way that all of this, these aseities, these immensities, the infinity, the eternity, the holiness, the righteousness, the love, the mercy, all of the attributes of God are somehow now being revealed outside of him, even in such a way, not only does it transform his face, it takes all of his dirty, grimy clothes that have been covered in gross sweat and soot from coming up the mountain. All of a sudden, his clothes then even transform and reflect his nature. You're like, that's Jesus. It's this beautiful moment, this glory moment as we are exposed to that moment to who Jesus really is. Guys, Mark doesn't tell us this. But in Luke, he shares that when they got to the top, the disciples all fell asleep because they were so tired. All of a sudden, you begin to wonder, maybe this is actually taking place at night. Just imagine you're at 10,000 feet. 
And as you look up and the sky is littered with creation, the universe and stars here and there and there, millions of them, thousands of galaxies, and then lo and behold, in front of you, a star is revealed. It's not a star, it's Jesus. But it's so bright and so beautiful that you begin to look at this and go, yeah, I get it. I get it. This is who Jesus is. And so we ask, we have to ask the question, do you get it? Do you get it? And so Jesus was transfigured. The second thing that happens while they're on the mountain is that Elijah and Moses show up. Look at verse 4. It says, and there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Okay, guys, I don't know what you guys had growing up. I had Legos, I had Star Wars, and I had Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, okay? Those were my toys. And growing up, and I would play with those toys, and I would, you know, like just stay in my room and kind of have all these imagination, these moments, and, and, and I wish my daughter would do that more, and, you know, and here we go, and so all this stuff and happening, and, and yet, guys, like, they had none of these things. Guys, these are the cornerstones of their foundation. This is the cornerstone of their faith. They probably would have had action figures of Moses and Elijah. It's like you got a doll, and it's Moses, and you're like, let my people go. You, you laugh, but the reality is that they probably had something. You got Elijah, or they're pretending to be Elijah, and he's like mocking the prophets of Baal. <laughs> is your God like out taking a nap? And like, oh, the action heroes. Guys, this is the cornerstone of the faith. Moses has been dead for 1,400 years. Elijah was taken up 900 years ago. And you're like, why? Why is, does he list these two? Like, isn't Jesus enough in this moment? Well, it's another. There's something really important. Both Moses and Elijah saw the face of God. Both were revealed, his personal name. That's a big piece of it. But Moses and Elijah represent the law and the prophets. And so Moses, who is responsible for writing the first five books of the law, the Torah, right? Ever since Genesis 3, he said, gosh, there's this person that's going to come and there's this recording. And all of a sudden, in the meantime, as we're waiting for this king, this Messiah, this anointed person to, to figure that out, oh, by the way, here's a list of rules by which we, we, de we determine righteousness. But later on, you have Elijah over all the prophets who keeps pointing and saying, you can't do that. You can't do that. Somebody will come. Somebody will come. Somebody will come. And so all of a sudden, with Elijah and Moses present, it's like the entire Old Testament shows up and points to Jesus and says, this is the guy. This is the guy that everybody has been waiting for. This is the Christ. This is the Messiah ever since Genesis 3.15. This is the moment that you have been waiting for. And here they are. They're just talking with Jesus. I love that it, in the Greek, it's very specific. It's not that they're talking to Jesus. It says they're talking with him. They're having a dialogue here in this moment. What does that teach you about how one day your conversation with Jesus will look like? One day, you will get to talk with Jesus himself in all of his glory. How beautiful is that? You see, we don't think about that enough. And yet here is Moses and Elijah, and they're talking, and all of a sudden, you're like, man, I want to know what's going on in this conversation. Like, Mark doesn't tell us anything about what's happening. There was a commercial a long time ago. There was a, it was a Geico commercial, it was this baseball team, and, and the pitcher was on the mound, and so the pitching coach comes out to the mound, and, and, and it just shows them talking, and everybody's like, man, what are they talking about? It's taking forever, what's going on? And then it zooms in, and the pitching coach is like, hey guys, 
Good news. I just saved a bunch of money on my car insurance. <laughs> and you're like, that's what you're talking about? Like, I want to know. Luke tells us that it's an extended conversation and that they're talking about his death. That's the conversation. They're talking about his death, and here's Peter, and here's James, and here's John. Guys, they're on the outside. I'm guessing they haven't said a word yet. The conversation just goes on and on and on, and they're just like, oh, are you? Then they're just taking it all in. This is who Jesus really is. Do you get it? Do you get it? I love this. This is where it gets kind of funny because Peter is, is normal for this. Like in the midst of this, you got to just believe that Peter's going to do something silly. Here's what he does. He says, Peter says to Jesus, probably the first mistake, don't say anything when Jesus is talking to Moses and Elijah on top of a mountain at 10,000 feet in a cloud. Okay, probably not, but he does. And he says, Rabbi, first mistake. <laughs> you guys, Peter just said half a chapter ago, you are the Christ. You just saw him revealed in all of his glory and the first word out of your mouth is teacher. Do, 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 um, uh, t -t teacher. Teacher? What should I call? I don't know what to call you now. <laughs> teacher? Um, it's it's uh, good for us to, to be here. Yep, uh, just wanted to say that. Wanted to let you know. Um, James, John, what do you guys think? Is it, yep, uh, we just conferred. It's good. Just wanted you to know it's good. Uh, for us to be here. And then he keeps going. Uh, how about we, um, you know, like there's this awkward silence probably, and then he's like, how about we just build a tent for each of you? I love that commercial um, when they're at the, uh, the airline and the, the dad is coming through the security checkout, right? And the guy gives him his bag and the guy says, hey, have a great flight. And then the dad says, you too. It's not what you're supposed to say. The, the little girl's like, Why'd you say that? Security guy's like, yeah, uh, that's not how it works, man. And then his wife, poor, poor wife's like, I thought I knew you. You know, it's like this great moment of like when you just say something that leads you in, you're like, oh no, all of a sudden I'm there. It's Peter in this moment. Like he starts and then just keeps digging and digging and digging. He's like, hey, how about I build a tent for all of you? And I just wonder if maybe Elijah in that moment is like, dude, you just saw the glory of Jesus revealed, and you want to build a tent for me? No, that's not how this works. That's not how this is supposed to go. Like, come on, Pete, really? Like, even Mark has to cover for Peter. Verse 6, it says, for he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Mark's like, I don't know, that's just Peter. This is what he does. He didn't know. So as we just said what he was on his mind. Obviously, he was scared. We look at this and we give Peter a bad rap. But guys, here's the reality is that that's you and me. You go back to the 434 blunders. That's what you remember. Over and over, you and I, we get it wrong way more than we get it right. And God's like, Jesus is like, hey, I know you're a people in process. I just want to invite you into the team. I'm glad you're on the team, and I want to continue to do this together. And so in the midst of Peter's failure over and over and over, he's still there and still a part of it. I just want to encourage you in that. There's compassion and love in the midst of this, and yet God is going to hold him accountable here in a moment. Here's what happens. It says, and a cloud overshadowed them. 
this cloud, guys, this is the Shekinah glory. This is the fire uh, from the wilderness. This is the fire from the tabernacle, or on the mountain. This is the fire from the tabernacle. It's in Solomon's temple. It's in Ezekiel's vision. It's the Shekinah glory. This is the presence of God that no one has seen for 600 plus years. This would send chills down your back because you're standing in the midst of God who in any other normal situation to touch would have been to bring death. And God surrounds and you go, oh, something is changing in this moment. And yet God is going to hold Peter accountable. It's almost like a rebuke of Peter in this moment. And it says, a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. End of statement. Listen to him. Guys, if we were just to pause for a moment and say, hey, what do you listen to? This is where this gets so practical and so important in your life every single day. This passage can be a, such a huge piece of our lives. We're going to talk about the ups and downs of life, but as we listen to things, who do you listen to? you listen to culture? Do you listen to podcasts? Do you listen to conspiracy theories? Do you listen to a certain sports person, radio, like whatever it is? And it's not that those things are bad, but just knowing that every single one of them has perspectives. And we look even at the good things, and we might say, gosh, well, I don't know Elijah or, or Moses that much, but what about John Wesley or Martin Luther or John Calvin or Zwingli or Chrysostom, any of those church history guys? Maybe they're there for you. And you're like, I don't know who those guys are either. Maybe it's C.S. Lewis and Tim Keller standing next to Jesus. And you're like, let me build a tent for all three of you. And I think that in that moment, if that were the case, Tim and C.S. Lewis would step back and go, Listen to him. It's not that their stuff is bad. Their stuff is great. But just know that what they're writing is to help you listen to Jesus. The most powerful words and challenging words that we're going to get are from Jesus. And God doesn't call him a teacher. That's, that's Peter's words for him. He calls him a rabbi. God's rebuke is says, no, he's not just a teacher. He's my son. He is my son, and I want you to listen to him. And I want to tell you guys this. I think there's a huge difference between listening to Jesus as a teacher and listening to Jesus as Lord or as the Son of God. There is a huge difference between listening to Jesus as a teacher and Jesus as the Son of God. Because oh, you, come, you come back to this and you look at what are the different things that, G, that he said. You go back to chapter 8, and he said these. He said, the Son of Man must suffer. The Son of Man must die, and the Son of Man must be raised. And so we look at this and we go, Jesus, this is so good. This is the groundwork for our atonement. This is the groundwork for our salvation. We love this about you. We love that we can have salvation, like by grace through faith. It's so good. We can be transformed. Oh man, this is beautiful. And Jesus is like, hold on, hold on. Just remember, if you want to come along, you must deny yourself, pick up your own cross, and follow me. You see, all of a sudden, when we look at this, we can find that it's easy to create a distinction or a break between this and wonder, have we created a form of Christianity that doesn't comply with what Jesus says? It's a challenging thing. And, and then all of a sudden on this moment, all these things are being wrapped up in because you can see the way this goes. Suffer, die, right? All these things as they move across, right? And as you think about Jesus in this moment, he 
He's transfigured. All of a sudden, you go, hey, I know this is going to be hard, but let me give you a glimpse, remind you of who you're following. Jesus is transfigured, right? It's this beautiful, beautiful, beautiful moment. And then he says, oh, by the way, the entire Old Testament points to Jesus. If there's any question, if there's any doubt, this is the guy. And then all of a sudden, God shows up himself, and he speaks. And what does he say? He says, listen. Listen. It's simple. This is my son. Will you listen Guys, what is it about human nature that we want to slap some wood and cloth together and call it good? Like there's this reality that we, we like the idea of monuments and it's almost like God shows up in this moment and says, guys, my presence is not in a monument. Please stop building monuments. That's not what I want. Jesus just lit up the night sky with his being. You think he needs another monument? No. You see, I think that what, what in some sense what's happening here is, is that God says, I don't want another monument. What I want is gospel momentum. That's what I want. So as we come back to this, as we come back to our map, we remember what started as this veiled picture of Jesus. This is just Jesus and his plain clothes. This was normal life. All of a sudden, we get this mountaintop experience. We're like, oh, man, this is Jesus. This is incredible. And Jesus is like, hey, we're not going to stay here. Life's got to move on, and we're going to go back down the mountain. We're going to go back to where we started, and he's going to be in the same clothes as what he started. And here's Jesus. Spoiler alert, when Jesus gets to the bottom of the mountain, a crowd comes to him because they've been arguing, and he jumps right back into ministry. You see, I think that sometimes we want to stay up here, and this is the way life often is. We have this stuff in life that's veiled, and we have all these questions, and we get to this moment where we find that God reveals something. We're like, oh man, this is so great, this is so good, and this is the mountaintop experience, I wish I could stay here, and yet this is the one time this happens. And just like, nope, we got to go back down the mountain. And I think that we fear this sometimes. And instead of thinking about just going back in the mundane, he's, this is an invitation. Hey, go back to your workplace. Take this. It's not about a monument. It's about capturing me and using that as momentum to go do what I've called you to do. To talk to and to be with that annoying person at work, whoever it is. Or that neighbor, or whatever it is, just capture that and take it with you. And so instead of it being this fearful thing, that all of a sudden we begin to think, maybe this is like a roller coaster ride. That's the best part. And we begin to come over the edge, and we back down into the world. I don't have time to read it, but here's how this ends in 9 through 13, is that they're coming down the mountain, and the disciples ask all these questions about Elijah and the Son of God and Jesus basically says this. You guys, he says that it was very good for the Sadducees and for the scribes, those people, to see that Elijah must come in Scripture. It's really important that they saw that he was a part of that, but they totally missed that the Messiah figure, which is me, by the way, they totally missed that he would have to suffer for their sake. You see, this, the scribes had a lens in which they viewed Scripture. They saw an outcome that they wanted, and that's how they read it. And so here's my question. Is it possible that you and I do the same thing? Have we read a version or read into the Bible a version of Christianity that doesn't actually exist where Jesus says, I'll do everything, but you don't have to follow? You see, this is a whole new reality, and this is what we've been talking about since the beginning. This is the battle of the kingdoms. This is my kingdom versus his kingdom, and it's a difference between Jesus being a teacher 
and Lord. And sometimes I wonder if we are dissatisfied with Christianity because we're dissatisfied with Jesus because we haven't fully surrendered to him as Lord. And so I would finish with this, is that instead of this one big mountaintop experience, maybe we view life like this. We come to church and we go back into life and you have those cave moments and, and you have all those different, those life groups and you, know, you have ups and downs and there's always gonna be these moments and these peaks where you're learning and you're getting a glimpse of Jesus, but then he's always then pushing you back out into the world. It's, like, no, it's not about a monument, it's about momentum back into the world. This is an incredible moment that, he, that we get this glimpse into the glory of Jesus who is so focused on dying for our sins that it should create awe around us that, that Jesus would harness all of his glory for our benefit. That is a beautiful, incredible moment. And yet Jesus and God somehow speak about, against us capturing that too long. Here's a sure way to ruin this moment in your life. The first way is to build a monument. You see, we just want to slap some wood and cloth together and call it good. Second thing, don't listen to Jesus. Just let it go. Whatever he says, don't listen. And the last one is this, is stay exactly where you are. Because I know that we'd all love to be on the mountaintop all the time rather than the valley. And yet Jesus, as he comes down the mountain, he takes Peter, James, and John. He goes right back into ministry, right back into real life. And I would argue what was veiled and then what was revealed is then fully discovered as we begin to live life in the same way. As Jesus. And so here's how I would end. Guys, we don't, we look at this. God doesn't want another monument. He wants gospel momentum. But at the same time, remember, we are people who blunder <laughs> and we make mistakes. And Jesus is like, I know you're a person in process. You are people in process. I'm glad you're on the team. Let's do this together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we finish this morning, I pray that you would give us a glimpse of Jesus. Now, we are, we are not Peter, James, and John, and, and we have to, to use our imagination even to capture this moment in Scripture, and we don't even fully know what that was like, but this morning, Lord, I pray that you would give us in some way, shape, or form a glimpse, a new revelation of Jesus in our lives, that we would be able to look at Jesus and go, wow, the glory the beauty and the awe that, that resides in you is beyond comparison. It is exceedingly beautiful and exceedingly good. And so God, this morning, wherever though we're at in our process, no matter how many mistakes we've made, no how many blunders we've been up to, whether it's one or 434, Lord, I pray that we would be excited to be a part of the team and that we would continue then to take this in this moment and to leave this place, to go down the mountain into the valley where you've called us, that we wouldn't have captured a monument here, but that we would carry the gospel momentum with us. Lord, we love you. In your name we pray, amen.